For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. David Weiner, who's speaking tonight, is a longtime practitioner at Ancient Dragon Zengate, and one of our, I believe, a dozen, I think I counted, uh, uh, Ancient Dragon uh, members who are or have been practicing chaplains. So uh, thank you, David, for speaking tonight. Thank you. I'm glad to see Kathy here because... uh, I'll be talking about psychology a little bit, so thank you. We'd love to hear your views afterwards. Um, so, uh, a few weeks ago, Dylan gave a Dharma talk on right livelihood. And during the discussion, I mentioned as a critical part of truly fulfilling right livelihood, uh, that intention is a big part of that. Intention. And though the job of chaplaincy falls well within the parameters of right livelihood, that alone, in and of itself, is not sufficient to truly make true livelihood. Tonight, I would like to expand on that, not so much in detailed Buddhist theology, even though I'm a chaplain, but in terms of my experience as a chaplain resident and in terms of questions about my understanding and practice of Buddhism that I myself am grappling with as a person, and in turn posing those same questions to you to ponder. My talk tonight is not so much a Dharma talk that reveals an insight into our practice as it is one that poses questions to our Sangha. So thank you for joining me in this quest. For now, returning to, the, returning to the subject of intention and my studies and training to become a hospice chaplain, intention is brought up again and again during training. As interns or chaplain residents who are practicing chaplaincy in real time with patients we see, our intention, our mindset when we walk into a room is something that us that is under constant examination, investigation, and thoughtful reflection. Our mantra, it is often stated by our teachers and my fellow students alike, is action, reflection, action. What did I do? What was my intention? Was I effective? Did my actions help or harm? What would I do differently next time? Next time, would I take the same action? Would I take the same approach? In his book about Zen practice, The Issue at Hand, Gil Fonzell writes, once a stone has been cast, it cannot be pulled back. Taking these words to heart, I have modified the spiritual care mantra to be reflection, action, reflection better to think first before we speak. The question for me 
is what words are flowing forth as I as I speak. Words that once uttered cannot be pulled back. As a Buddhist, how can I fulfill the pure precept of supporting and embracing all beings? How can I ensure my actions, my words, do no harm? Though chaplaincy by its very definition has a theological foundation, chaplaincy training is steeped in the practice of psychology. There is continual looking at the motivation and intention of one's actions. In evaluating their chaplaincy competency, not only are chaplains required to articulate the themes and core values of their religion or heritage, religious heritage, they are also asked, and I quote from the evaluation form, identify and discuss major life events, relationships, location, cultural context, and social realities that influence personal identity as expressed in pastoral functioning. In other words, what made you who you are and importantly, how that affects your spiritual care. In my own chaplaincy practice, on any given day, I'll ask myself, when am I? When? Am I back in my early childhood when I felt I was abandoned by my parents? Or in high school when I was bullied for not having gone through puberty? Is my underlying and unspoken intent when I walk into a patient's room to prove that I am wise and capable despite the ridicule I suffered in high school? Or is it being present for the patient that I see? Is my intent to rescue patients from their dire situations, which in reality is rescuing myself from my early childhood trauma? Or is my intention to be with the patient to see their needs, provide compassionate care, and empower the patient in coping with their situation. Even using words like, my patients, is revealing. Do the patients really belong to me? Have I placed myself above them in some hierarchy I created in my mind? All this leads to chaplaincy training relying on constant self-examination so we can better care for the patients we see and use what chaplain educators call the clinical practice of action, reflection, action, which I as a Buddhist practitioner see as reflection, action, reflection. The question is, how does this constant psychological self-examination this question of intent, intent, tie into our Buddhist practice. Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Psychology, once said that the aim of therapy was to have patients wake up from the dream. Some compared Perls' statement to the Buddhist tenet of enlightenment. For isn't waking up from our dreams what we th- of what we think the world is? Waking up from our delusions and seeing the world clearly a reflection of Buddhist thought? Perhaps though, in different ways, psychology and Buddhism do have a common denominator when it comes to delusion. Our practice calls us to give up our delusions, to be present, to be now, 
without preconceptions, to have what Suzuki Roshi calls beginner's mind, to enjoy our breath and let go of what we are clinging to, and in so doing find harmony, equanimity, and awareness of the ultimate reality. In chaplaincy, when I enter a beginner's room, I have to ask myself, do I have beginner's mind? Yet here again comes intent. How did we end up here at Ancient Dragon practicing Zen Buddhism? Some of us, like I know Taigen, if I may say Taigen without revealing confidentiality, some of us were seeking answers. And perhaps, like myself, some may have been seeking refuge for their suffering. I was going through a divorce and my sister had just died. The question is whether we, myself included, who have sought refuge from suffering, is our intent still on finding refuge, either from our past suffering or the suffering of the world that is now enduring? Or are we simply present and enjoying our breath? What is our intention? Several years ago, during a dokusan, Taigen clearly saw my intent of seeking refuge from my suffering and insightfully told me the story of Zhao Zhou and his teacher, Nan Chuan. Zhao Zhou asked, what is the way? And Nan Chuan answered, ordinary mind is the way. Zhao Zhou continued his questioning, how do I get it? Nan Chuan replied, the more you try to get it, the further away it is. The story continues with another question and answer, but in the two first questions, the groundwork has already been laid. If my intent, my purpose, my aspiration, my attachment is to find the way to reach enlightenment, which Buddha speaks of, if my intent is to find refuge, to find the road to serenity, the road will become a very muddy one and I will be like a wagon whose wheels are mired in mud up to their axles. I will be stuck in my own intention. The other day while serving as outside greeter, without intention I watched the moon. I looked at the moon and the minutes passed. I slowly began to see the moon actually move across the sky, slowly, imperceptibly, but nevertheless moving waves of space went flowing in front, on the bottom, and below. If my intention had been to see the moon move across the sky, would I have seen it do so? My heart says probably not. Returning to Zhao Zhou's story, it continues for one more insightful couplet of the dialogue. Zhao Zhou asks, Then how do I know whether it is the way or not? And Nan Xuan replied, It is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. When you reach the true way beyond doubt, it is as vast and open as the sky. How could it be something to affirm or negate? The way has no small mind and intention. It has no expectation, no anticipated outcome, no certitude, 
it just is. It can neither be affirmed nor negated. Seek and be stuck. Don't seek and you will find yourself just being content without intent. As the globe of our earth floats through space, can we see the stars beneath our feet? Though we cannot see them, do they still exist? What is our perception? Can we be with what is without any intent or anticipation or aspiration? We are on a razor thin edge here. When I walk into a patient's room as a chaplain, can I use my knowledge to be a beginner? Use my knowledge to be a beginner. To, be, to just be without a fixed view. As Cornell West once said, compassion has no intent. Compassion has no intent. Can I connect with the patient I am seeking and do so without intent? As written in the song of the Jewel Mirror Samadhi, a hair's breast deviation and you are out of tune. So I ask you, what is our intent? Or is there none? How do we stand without any intent? Poetry and lyricism soothe, yet in a world suffering and pain where injustice perpetuates injustice, where books are banned and fear is exalted, where pain and death abide in hospital corridors, what is my intent? What is our intent? In studying the Eightfold Path and practices of right effort, right consciousness, and right mindfulness, what is my intention? Is it to ask questions of the self and deepen my understanding, to draw closer, to delve into the ultimate reality, or is it to escape suffering, to strengthen my sense of rightness by deluding myself that I am becoming adept in my practice? that at last, I finally get it. Is that my intent? When I walk into a patient's room, am I perversing the meaning of the first Bodhisattva vow? I vow to free them, seeing myself as a rescuer, a savior, or am I vowing to be with them, to walk with them towards the ultimate reality? the two of us connected in Indra's net and reflecting each other. A hair's breadth deviation and you are out of tune. Now, slight digression here. I may be forcing my own writer's ego here, but I think perhaps we should change the wording of the first vow to I vow to be with them or I vow to walk with them as the intention in those words seems less clear seems clearer and less open to salvation-centric misuse of freeing others. But then again, that's my own my own task to look at and learn from. Returning. It's easy to 
quickly jump to the fore with an answer to this or any other question. But what is our intent in doing so? What, is, what does it mean to have no answers, expectations? And is this Dharma talk merely an exhortation, a, a pushing you to act in a certain way, and so doing a perversion of the seventh grade precepts? I vow not to pray self at the expense of others, for aren't all exhortations a form of rightness? I know the truth, and thus a form of self-praise, a separation, a disconnection from others, a disconnection from the ultimate reality, a hair's breadth deviation, and you are out of tune. And so in my uncertainty and questioning, I share this most important of questions with you, invite you to ask both me and yourselves, what is your intent? I'd like to say one thing in closing. Uh, I am honored to speak today on National Indigenous Peoples Day. I would like to, as a former Blackfoot pipe carrier or shaman, I would like to say in the name of all our relations, I would like to say may we all be in harmony with the earth and with each other. And may we thank the indigenous peoples who cared for this land so long before we confiscated it. Thank you to them. So, this is kind of like a personal struggle for me. Whenever I go into a room, whenever I, I see a patient, what is my intent? And I try to use my bodhisattva vows and my, my psychology lessons that I learn in class to be present, to be there, and not to save people, but to empower them. How can I empower them? How can I sh talk to them and say, well, have you thought of this or thought of that? So that they come up and say, yeah, that's a good, oh no, well, I think this way. What? What lessons have you learned that you, you can use for coping in the situation you're in? Let them empower themselves instead of coming in with my intent to rescue. So I ask you, how do you find or what is your intent in your daily life, in your work, and here being an ancient dragon? What is your intent? Thank you. So please, uh, people at Ebenezer, people online, comments or questions or reflections or responses to David, please feel free. This is related to chaplaincy, but I visit two ladies in a, the Regency Nursing Home every week. One of them is a friend of mine from back in the day. I knew her, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. And the other one is someone she met in this nursing home and their buddies. And they're both on Medicare, and they're pretty much reduced to a bed in a 
One of them shares room with three other people, and one of them shares room with two other people. They have a bed, and they have a little cabinet. And everything they ever owned or had is in this space. So most of what they have is gone. And I am I am not on their I am not their uh, power of attorney or their health power of attorney. So if I go there and have anything to talk to the nurses or the social shelter shelter worker, nobody can talk to me because I'm not their person. So mostly I just go and I visit and we talk as friends and. It's interesting because I sometimes go and think I'll tell them about what I'm doing, thinking it will expand their view of the world because they don't they don't leave. They may a couple times they did with me. They may go outside. There's a little garden that's in the little garden area, but mostly they never leave the building. And my friend said, really, what you should do is ask them to talk about their lives because that's what they. You know, they have stories to tell and things they want to say. And this friend of mine actually is a chaplain. But um, it's been very enlightening for me in so many ways. And the thing that amazes me the most is, in my view, their life is very limited. Everything that they had or owned or cared about is gone. And yet, they are still happy. And they still, they, 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 they're not sitting around saying, okay, you know, here I am in this nursing home, I want to die now. No. And I, I, I don't know if I would take that same attitude at their age and, and, and their physical capabilities. They really can't, they could not survive on their own. They really need to be where they are. They're, they're in wheelchairs, they're not walking. Their, their health is... My friend is a little older, but she's healthier than the, the the woman she became close with in this nursing home. The other woman is going to dialysis three times a week and has uh, epilepsy. So you think about why, what do you, you know, sometimes I think, what am I doing here? And really, I just go to, because the, this woman is a friend of mine who I knew from back in the day and nobody else comes to visit them they don't have family that's involved in their life at all so I think a lot about intention and, 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 and what am I doing there and do I go for me or do I go for them yeah, I guess that's the big question. Because from my perspective, you know, I get a lot of goodies seeing them because I feel like I'm helping and I cheer them up. And they, every time I leave, say, oh, it's so wonderful you come and see us and this is this great and yada, 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 yada. So I get, you know, a lot of pats on the back and, you know, good girl you every time I come <laughs> and see them. And that's nice, but, you know, that isn't, so my friend who's the chaplain, that is her practice. She goes to various nursing homes and, and does, she brings communion, does a little religious service. And so she was going to a nursing home that was new to her. And what she realized is, is that the people who are coming to the services she leads and the prayer groups or discussions, 
none of them are really benefiting from that because most of them don't understand what she's talking about. And she realized she's not going there for them. So she said, I'm going to stop going there because I'm going there for me because, you know, it's part of my practice and it's, 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 that's what I, the role I play. But I'm not really benefiting them. And I thought that was also interesting and it made me think again about, okay, what does that mean when you're helping someone in and Especially when the dynamic is, you know, my life is so much freer and larger than these two women's lives that it's hard not to see some sort of a hierarchy or some sort of a... And it's hard to, to, for me to remember that they're equal with me. You know, they're not that much. One is 73 and one is 84. They're not that much older than me in reality. So, anyway. So, yeah, that's my two cents on intention. I was absolutely sure one thing I had I had an experience as a chaplain that was really helped shape my thinking a little bit. And I was a chap chaplain I went into a room with a man who uh, was dying. He had cancer all over his body and wanted to go home. And it's not that I could really quote do for him. So I just sat with him and I held his hand. I was just being there. And I did it the next day and the day after. And each day as I left, he gave me a stronger handshake. To the point on the last day I was surprised. He really grabbed my hand and <laughs> shook it and shook it. It was just before I went back. He appreciated by just being there. And that's the thing that I, I try now to bring to every visit that I have. Just to be there. Sometimes that's just enough. It's not about me. It's about them. And so I understand when you say, what is your intent? And you think about it. But sometimes just being there is enough. Kathy has her hand up. You're on mute, Kathy. <coughs> um, thank you for your talk, David. That was very um, useful to think about. I, uh, what your comment just reminded me when I began my internship in psychology, I had a supervisor who I consider one of my major supervisors in terms of her help helping me move into this role. And she's, she began supervision by saying, I want you all to remember this mantra that you should say regularly. And the mantra is, this is not about me. 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 And I don't think at the time, you know, I I understood that we have to get ourselves out of the way. But I don't think at that point in my training, I understood how much we can get pulled in and that it it takes a lot of work to stay out of the way. You know, it it you can get caught up in even. Uh, it feels good to give good advice and somebody to be grateful for it. You know, it's like you can you can get pulled in in a lot of ways. And I think what you were saying about the gentleman that you just sat with is that sometimes people just need someone to witness what they're going through. That to have a witness that someone else hears it, gets it. Uh, means they're not alone with it. Um, and 
and there are some ways we can do that more effectively than other ways. You know, it's like to be fully there as a witness um, means to be in some ways putting yourself aside or, um, you know, Jerry was getting at the same thing. Um, thinking about um, who is this benefiting? What comment I'm making to somebody, what is the intention of it? I find myself sometimes with friends where I, you know, I'm, I'm not so cautious. I'm more out there, you know, with friends, I'll have conversations and talk to them about, oh, I had this problem today, or I, I'm worried about this or that, you know, and, um, and I feel fine about that. But every once in a while, I realize, okay, have I stopped to pay attention to them in this conversation? Or do I have any <laughs> idea what's going on with them right now? You know, and it, it's, um, and so it, it takes that, it's somehow being aware of other people in a bigger way, and maybe aware of what we don't know. And, and tuning in to them. Um, but you're right about this is part of Buddhist practice. I agree with you. I, I think there's a connection here. And I think the more you sit, I mean, I, it's not like I am a great sitter. I, this ancient dragon really helps me sit, but I, uh, I cannot brag about my practice of sitting all the time, but I do find meditative practices to be helpful in terms of stepping back and being able to observe uh, more of the time and not always being so ego pulled into things. Um, anyway, just I'm rambling now, but I enjoyed your talk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy and David and Jerry. Um, this is uh, a helpful and very relevant talk for me now. I've been involved uh, maybe the last couple months in uh, someone I know who I who was a little bit involved with my old sangha in California and now lives in the Southwest. And, call, and we've kept in touch uh, and he called me his uh, partner for many many years uh, left him and left his house and uh, he had to move out so he's been calling me almost every day sometimes several times a day just saying I'm in so much pain can't stand it. I'm in so much pain. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes think, well, what can I say or what can I do? And there's not much. I can listen to it. So this is going on. He called me just before <laughs> I was coming here, and I didn't have time to say much except that, you know, I'm on my way out. Um, 
what, what's going on, and he just, you know, he's in a lot of pain, and it's emotional pain. But he doesn't, he's afraid he's going to die, he doesn't know where, but he, he found a place to live, but now he maybe has to move out. Anyway, it's just uh, this... pleading for help and there's nothing, not much I can do but listen so I, I, just to say that this talk and these, this issue is uh, very relevant for me now uh, I don't know how to help him I want to help him but you know, as you were saying David that's maybe just me wanting to be helpful <laughs> I kind of felt like I had a breakthrough yesterday, but then today it doesn't seem to have made any difference. <laughs> but uh, I asked him what he likes, you know, and I suggested, well, you know, go for a walk or listen to music or watch a movie. And I said, what do you like? And he said, I like bagels. <laughs> <laughs> and I like chocolate ice cream. <laughs> so I was, I was encouraging to him to, you know, Enjoy your bagel, you know, and uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, maybe that helped him yesterday. Today it doesn't seem to have made much difference, but anyway, I just appreciate the dilemma um, that you posed, David, and Kathleen and Joe. Uh, and our wanting to be helpful may not be, <laughs> may be an obstruction, actually. And just, um, he said, I need friends. So I said, I'm your friend, I am. He asked, um, do you know of anybody else who could be my friend? <laughs> so if any of you want to uh, listen to this person on the telephone, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Doug. like the jewel jewel samadhi um, we're really you're really on a razor's edge and one step of deviation you're out of tune and my intent could be to become and this is my issue I own this 100% of trying to be you know the rescuer trying to prove my my worth to, to other people to the world and and then just being there for that other person in a way that allows them to look and find their own answers and to say things that can prod that and it's not a matter of my rescue but a matter of them being empowered and finding and it's a real delicate balance, very, very delicate balance at times. And it's, uh, it's something I struggle with. Um, I know my teacher said one word to me that helped me. She said, be curious. When you're curious, it's not about you, it's about the other person. And this is fulfilling the Bodhisattva vows. This is what we're here for. An ancient dragon, and I think on earth, is to be here for others. 
So how can I be for others, be curious about them, and take my my intent of being the good guy out of the way? Um, thank you, everyone, for speaking. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So I'm in a very similar situation. I just uh, trained to become a grief counselor. But we just have to listen. We're not allowed to bring any. Um, I'm trained as a nurse. I per- personally study grief extensively. Can't do any of that. Just have to listen. And it's really challenging. Um, and I've been trying to approach it really with a not knowing mind because there is, you know, it's just being and listening to people and it's very, it's going to be a very big adventure. So I really appreciate the relevance of the conversation. It is really hard to trust. And I think that's part of the journey. Uh, Just trust that whatever being is going on with all the people that may be there or just, if it's just one other person, it's bigger than what we know. That's where I'm kind of going with it. And that um, even if you can, I was able to give someone a hug uh, last time. I found that very, my only way to communicate without using languaging. So I'm just kind of sharing. It's a humbling journey. And I'm very giving up a lot of the, my, uh, I call it my toolkit. So I'm in a new journey on it. But I just, thanks for listening. But I, I do support not knowing. And then it's bigger than what we really understand. So thank you. something you said you know words can sometimes have hidden loaded meanings when you say bigger than ourselves or something in a certain way it's putting ourselves down um, I'm very conscious of that putting other people down or, or making a judgment some way the other the other curse <laughs> that I bring into a, a room when I walk and I see a patient is a judgment <laughs> I'm, I'm a very good judge, <laughs> uh, but that's not helpful <laughs> in chaplaincy. Um, so I'm very aware of the use of words sometimes. And I think maybe a, a way to look at it is sometimes, and for all of us, and for me, for me, is that it's more expansive. There's something out there that is just, it's not just me. I am part of something. I am part of something that is so big and so vast and when I open my eyes and see that and stop separating myself that's when I feel the most calm when I feel the most calm and hopefully with the people I am with at the time bring a sense of calm to them Thank you Um, I would just say what I'm experiencing is that, that these people need to talk and even if they're not talking you're holding space for them. And it's, it's a very intangible, it's very intangible, but it's very alive. So I'm kind of exploring this unknown. I feel it's very expansive personally. I don't feel my analogy was, it wasn't expansive. That's what I'm trying to point to. Um, our minds can create some context, but it can be limiting. So it's just, a, it's just kind of interesting to not feel we have to give something to somebody. It might be more of a sharing or aliveness or something. 
I mean, that's been brought up. You know, Jerry brought it up and then Kathy brought it up, too. So I'm just kind of going that way. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who's spoken. Um, I'll just mention, I mentioned at the introducing David that we actually have uh, at least 12 people with Deborah, what Deborah just said, maybe 13, I don't know, in Ancient Dragon's Endgate who have trained and functioned and, and are functioning as uh, chaplains in hospitals and elsewhere. Um, and I'll just mention that one of them, Howard Ruan, who's uh, joins us is part of our Hyde Park Sangha. Uh, just had it was just in an article published in Tricycle, an interview about his chaplaincy work and its relationship to the study of psychology. So uh, Mike just posted it on our website, so you can look at that too. So yeah, this is uh, these questions are very alive for us in terms of how. Do we be in the world? How do we listen to the suffering of the world? So thank you, everyone.